Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played Principal Sands in the 2011 film The Rainbow Tribe, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Um, that was that was a strange uh, show for me as an actor of Fil- Rainbow Tribe. Film, you mean, right? Yeah, yeah, it was a film, and, and it was <laughs> it was strange because I I thought my role was dramatic, but the writer and the director thought it was a comedy. Now, this is one of the biggest problems an actor can have. This is like trying to jump a motorcycle across the Grand Canyon. I read this story and I thought it was a very touching and moving script, <laughs> and they thought that my scene was supposed to be kind of almost slapstick comedy and so when when i first did the scene for them uh they had offered me the part when i first did the scene for them their jaws were dropping with horror as to why i was playing this so straight and then the director was like we'll talk wait let me talk to him let me talk to him and the director tried to say you know Stephen, um i think you know the reason we brought you in here is to find the the comedy in, in this scene, you find the comedy. I said, well, this is a, a show about, you know, one, one guy's dying of a brain tumor and this kid who can't fit into society is being shipped away to this camp where, where he rediscovers himself. I mean, it kind of made me cry. So, well, this scene, you know, let's make this scene kind of funny. So I ended up in one of those situations where I had to stick to my guns and play the scene the way I thought it was supposed to be. Whereas the other people in the scene played it as if it was Saturday Night Live. So I have never had the guts, David, to see this film. Because I am certain that there will be a kind of implosion <laughs> of, of the worst order <laughs> if I ever were to see that scene. Oh, I'm man. sure it will be disastrous. Poor, poor Stephen Tobolowsky trying to... Uh, salvage some kind of dignity and gravitas in every single role, no matter dignity how. Gravi- that's, that's it. <laughs> gravitas is me. Well, Stephen, before we begin today's storytelling festivities, uh, a couple of quick announcements I wanted to make. First of all, a big shout out to AV Club at avclub.com. Uh, a very talented writers who I respect greatly work there, and they have just started featuring us on their weekly column called Podmass, I think is what it's called, where they round up some of the best podcasts of each week. You can check that out at avclub.com, and uh, they have a lot of other fantastic podcasts on there, including uh, you know the Adam Carolla Show and uh, the WTF podcast with Mark Maron, both, by the way, coincidentally, podcasts that Stephen Tobolowsky has also appeared on. Uh, and one other thing I wanted to bring up, which is that our Kindle single went on sale this week. And you can find that at stephentobolowski.com. And it's a new series of stories uh, written by Stephen, which is exclusive to the ebook format. We've already sold a few thousand copies of it. And so thank you guys for all the people that have purchased it and who have supported the Tobolowski files in that way. And I just wanted to remind people, it's still out there. You can still pick up a copy for yourself. It'll be probably there forever or as long as the Amazon store is up. But uh, I would not drag your feet on this because uh, every single purchase uh, helps to support the Tobolowski Files. And people at home may not know this, but uh, the Tobolowski Files actually takes a significant uh, 
amount of resources to produce on a weekly basis. There's the process of hosting and distributing all the files, not to mention all the time that goes into writing and uh, editing the story and write and uh, editing the sound files. Well, all this stuff takes time, and we've been putting it out for free thus far. Uh, so if you've been enjoying it, if you've enjoyed the last 40 uh, hours or so of material that we put out, uh, it would really be great if you guys could uh, help us out and go to stephentobolowski.com, buy the new Kindle single. Uh, Stephen, I think you also have one quick preparation announcement yeah, to make. For yeah, a couple things. First of all, yes, a big thank you to everybody who has supported us thus far. Thank you so much. It really helps a ton. And uh, in terms of today, I'm all about the story. Today's story, I think I should mention that for maximum enjoyment, you should listen to also Podcast 15, The Politics of Romance, because Part of today's story is actually part two of episode 15. So for maximum enjoyment, go back and listen to that other one too. Well, Stephen, recently uh, what has been occupying you, if I may uh, say so, is that we talk on a fairly regular basis at this point, uh, which is uh, it's not, not something I ever imagined uh, would happen <laughs> in our relationship, but it's still very cool, uh, and, uh, and I'm honored by it. And recently you've been telling me about shooting glee and uh, the the fox television show and how much time that's taken and how difficult it is simply because you know they're producing an insane number of musical numbers on a weekly basis just pumping them out there Uh, so i guess one question i had for you Stephen, is what is it like to shoot glee is it you know tell share with our listeners uh how difficult it is and also uh i'm wondering what you do at night after you're done, do you kind of prepare for the next day of shooting by reading a ton of scripts? Do you just chill out? What's going on there? Well, first part of the question is uh, I was talking to the producer and the director uh, the other day when we were shooting, and I, it was an awesome amount of work that has to be done every day uh, to, to produce one episode of Glee. You know, we work probably 10 days working 15 hours each day. And they said that one of the keys to making Glee a success is that most of the cast is under 25, so they could work them like slaves. Of course, it didn't help me any. I still have to soak my feet in Epsom salts at night. But but the second part of the question, what I do to kind of chill is, no, I do not read scripts. And I and usually after one day of doing Sandy Ryerson, the last thing I could do is come home that evening and study my lines of Sandy Ryerson for the next day. But what I'd like to do to chill out is get a little glass of wine and watch – well, it's surprising, but I like to watch animal shows. And i got to say, David, it's becoming more and more difficult. I mean – Animal shows ain't what they used to be. Now, you know, even when I find Animal Planet, you, you know, they may have something horrible on there like Animal Hoarders, which, which is, doesn't give me the same feeling of relief when I watch an animal program. Uh, I have to tell you that it, it's kind of been a kind of personal exploration of mine that over the years, you know, I've become more and more interested in the things that separate us humans from the animals. <laughs> and don't be deceived, David, because animals are far more complex than they first appeared on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And the more one learns about them, the more one is amazed of their complex social structures and mating rituals and what even appears to be a surprisingly deep response to death and mourning. But there seems to be one area that clearly divides us from any other creatures. 
Man is the only animal that seems fixated with writing screenplays about time travel. If you were to put a thousand monkeys in a room with typewriters, I bet you they would come up with Hamlet before they came up with the time machine. And I don't think this is accidental. I believe that humans have a very different relationship with time than, say, cats. And the reason is because we have a concept that never enters a tabby's furry little noggin. And that concept is the single word, forever. We can never get over the hump of forever. We all know the only place we're going to experience it is in death, which is terrifying. Science and religion make attempts to comfort us, but the only tool we really have at our disposal to comprehend eternity is art. In the swirls of space in Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night or in the second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony, we're able to feel a reality beyond our lives. The fact that we are so expendable is what makes us such a good story. And like any good story, our time on Earth is filled with suspense. At any moment, whether we're falling in love, finding a vacation home, or feeding the cats, we could suddenly fall off the edge into oblivion. I think this is the reason why we're so obsessed with building a workable time machine, something that with the push of a lever enables us to fly back and forth across the frontier. It's the most complete way of banishing the fear of time. There are several definitions of time used in physics. All of them have the ability to give you a headache. So for the sake of our being on the same page, I'm going to define the term in a way that always makes me think of Star Trek. Space-time. Space-time defines any event in four dimensions. Three dimensions to handle all things material, what and where something is. And the fourth dimension would be time, when it is. But truthfully, past, present, and future are a lot more slippery to pin down than the simple space-time model, especially when you deal with invisible things like ideas. Where does an idea come from? Where does it go? Some languages like Hebrew reflect the slippery nature of the universe and don't really deal with past or future. Instead, the language classifies events as perfect or imperfect. Perfect events have been completed. Imperfect events have yet to come to pass. There's a sort of fatalism built into the syntax that's not necessarily comforting. I think the concept of space-time is responsible for most time travel movies. If we exist in three dimensions already, it's easy to make the jump that all we have to do is move backwards and forwards in the fourth dimension like it was a highway. All that's left to make up a plot is the method of movement. It could be a vehicle, like in the time machine, an illness, like in Time Traveler's Wife, or war, like in the Terminator movies. If you add the Hebrew sense of fate and call it quantum physics, you can add the story point that you can't change anything in the new time you travel to because then everything in the universe changes. This is, of course, ridiculous because just traveling to the different time is already a change. But if they wrote out that plot point, there wouldn't be a movie. The kernel of comfort in the heart of all of these movies is the same, that somehow the future is impressionable. There's something strangely compelling in man's desire to time travel. 
It's a storyline that actually goes back for generations. And if you include tales with characters like Elijah in the Bible who travel to other worlds back and forth, and if you add Egyptian mythology, you can make the case that the storyline has existed since the beginning of written history. Now, you combine that with the idea that almost any new invention of man is actually a form of imitation. For example, cars have four wheels and two headlights, imitating an animal's four legs and eyes. A plane imitates a bird. A computer tries to imitate a sort of brain that can't find anything unless you know how to spell correctly. So what on earth are time travel movies trying to imitate? Does something already exist? that is the template for time travel. That all depends on how you think time travel should look. Physicists have predicted that time travel already exists on the subatomic level for periods of time that are so short, a billion such events could occur during one commercial break on the Golf Channel. There is a speculation that wormholes can exist in space that move from one time to another. The only problem is that the conditions inside the wormhole are worse than flying coach, and nothing of any substance could survive the journey. Well, this obviously is not the stuff of a good movie where the hero develops an invention no one can use. At first glance, the theme in most time travel movies is simply to come up with an excuse to have sex with people in the future that think you're a whole lot hotter than you really are. They're really spring break movies for science majors. Putting movies aside, if we look at what physicists say time travel really is, does it already exist? Something that doesn't necessarily transport us visibly, yet is able to take us to another time on some sort of unseen molecular level. I heard one professor suggest that it does. The machine is music. And I should add that the musicologist was not trying to be clever, romantic, or metaphoric. He was speaking from a scientific point of view. He said that the written notes on the staff paper, complete with sharps and flats and rests, are not just artifacts from another time. They are the time itself. A Bach oratorio played with original instruments contains the entire code of that time on earth, just as much as E equals MC squared describes the universe. If you are unwilling to walk that far down the road, I have a truism that's a little easier to embrace. If music doesn't describe the entire world in which it was written, it does describe how that world danced. If you did a pie graph of music, you would have the largest sections sliced out for songs of love, of prayer, and of mourning, But the biggest slice by far would be how we dance. Bach, Mozart, Vivaldi, and almost all of Green Day is written as dance music. Coded in those rhythms and phrases are the clothes and shoes people wore, the rooms where the music was played, and the roads that took you to those rooms. And if you listen more closely, you'll be able to see the looks exchanged between partners and feel the expectations and the hopes and the disappointments, even the despair. Beethoven was furious when an admirer asked him what his music represented. He said it didn't represent anything. It was the thing itself. In the summer of 1993, 
I was thumbing through a piano magazine, and I saw that one of my favorite pianists, Alfred Brendel, was giving a master class in Beethoven's piano sonatas at Carnegie Hall. Enrollment was limited to 200 students from around the world. In an act of incomprehensibility that rivaled my taking up the clarinet in elementary school, I told Anne I was going to apply. Anne and I had just finished shooting My Father the Hero in the Bahamas. She was pregnant with our second child and was in that golden period in between morning sickness and growing into the size of a house. And for some reason, she didn't object to my sending in an application. The application wanted my musical (laughs) resume and qualifications for attending. There was a whole lot of space left for the applicant to write in performance venues, symphonies played with, universities attended, papers published. I wrote, and I quote, I don't play the piano very well, but I'm in movies, and I love Alfred Brindell. I got in. I arrived in New York and stayed at a small hotel down the street from Carnegie Hall. We were to check in at 8 a.m. that first day, and I was standing in line when an incredibly energetic man in a white shirt and a shaved head came running up to me screaming, My God, Stephen, I can't believe it, you're here! He hugged me. I was terrified, so naturally I laughed and hugged him back and proclaimed, Well, how could I miss this? The man laughed the laugh of unbridled joy mixed with a pot of coffee. He said, indeed, indeed, can't miss a chance to learn with the great one. (laughs) So, how is the Berlin Philharmonic? Pause. I said, um, excuse me? He said, Berlin. I said, yes, yes, Berlin. It's a great city. The wall is gone. The man stared at me and continued, Stephen, I heard you just did the Schubert cycle with the Berlin Philharmonic. I looked into his eyes with no good answer and said, Not me. He looked at me like I was pulling his leg and said, Yes, yes it was. I read the reviews. Uncomfortable pause. I said, I think that was probably someone else. The man looked at me somewhat mystified and said, Aren't you Stephen Creel, the pianoforte player? I said, No. No, I'm Stephen, but a different Stephen. He said, you weren't in Berlin this year? I said, no, that was probably Stephen Creel. The man's entire head began to turn red, and he said, then who the hell are you? I said, I'm Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm an actor. And the man said, then I don't know you at all? I said, no. He said, then why did you hug me? I thought about it for a moment and said with a good deal of uncertainty, because you hugged me. And you seemed so happy to see me, I didn't want to disappoint you. The man's head was scarlet, close to exploding. He said quietly, I am a nice man, but don't hug me anymore. I shook hands with him and said, agreed. By the way, who are you? He said, my name is Justin Kolb. I'm a pianist and a friend of Stephen Creel. I nodded and added, apparently not a very good one. We both laughed and became bonded by one of the strongest ties between two people, mutual humiliation. Justin asked me if I was really an actor. I told him I was, and I'd been in many movies. I just finished a movie with Bill Murray called Groundhog Day. I was in Mississippi Burning. 
Justin said he had heard of the movie but hadn't seen it yet. He asked me how I had the guts to sign up for a piano master class. He asked what I was going to do if Brindell asked me to play for him. That's when I got my first panic attack. We were all ushered into a recital hall. I looked around and saw about every famous classical musician I'd ever seen at the Hollywood Bowl. Even E. Kissin sat down right behind me with his wild mane of hair, and sitting next to me was Midori, the violin prodigy from Japan. Alfred Brindell came out on stage and received a standing ovation. He started with my standard question, when I want to kill time in my class. He said, does anyone have any questions? That drew a polite laugh from the group. No one raised their hand. Brindell raised his eyebrows with a certain amount of amusement. He shrugged, sat down, and waited in silence. Finally, a woman up front raised her hand. Brindell pointed to her, and she asked, What do you think is the most important thing to do when you learn a piece? Brindell stared at her for a long beat and said, Read the music. That brought the house down. Another piece of perfect comic timing. Brindell looked at the class and raised his eyebrows and said, What are you laughing at? It's the truth. Brindell's stern composure broke into a sly smile. He continued, Very few people can read the music accurately. Most of you will look at music and play what you think is there. Most of you will look at music and play what you think should be there. But very few people have the ability to see what is really on the page, what is written and play it. I challenge you all to take out your most familiar Beethoven, play it while studying the music, and see how accurate you are. See if you're really following every rest, every phrase, every held note. Everything on the page means something, but you must be able to see it first. Wow! Already worth the price of admission. I wrote that down in my little spiral notebook, and Midori was looking over at my shoulder at what I was writing. I looked up at her. She smiled. My tummy felt all warm. Note to self, if you ever imagined having a business where you could bottle sunshine and sell it on a cloudy day, start with Midori's smile. The Beethoven sonatas are remarkable on a lot of different levels. They were written over the course of his composing career, so in a way, they're a geological core sample of the development of Beethoven's writing skills. The piano was redesigned for him to write his sonatas. Notes were added to give him more range. The key bed was deepened and strengthened to allow for more power and expression, so in a way, the sonatas tracked the sonic experiments of the instrument itself. And then there is the beauty for which there are no words. For the next week, we heard lectures from Brindell and William Kinderman on various aspects of each group of sonatas. One of the high points was when Midori fell asleep next to me and started to quietly snore during Brindell's lecture on humor in Beethoven. At that point, I wanted to adopt her. Brindell took an entire lecture to discuss a sonata I was not familiar with, Sonata 110, in A-flat. Apparently, this sonata was written at the lowest point in Beethoven's life. He was completely deaf. His piano had teeth marks above the keyboard where he had to bite into the wood of the piano 
so he could hear the vibrations through his head and be able to compose. Beethoven was desperately ill with fever and jaundice. He had lost all of his money taking care of his brother who was dying and in legal battles. And a final blow was when his nephew Carl, whom Beethoven had taken guardianship of, tried to kill himself. In spite of all of this, the opening strains of this sonata, 110, are the most hopeful and the most beautiful Beethoven had ever written. Brindell described it as the sound of ice melting on branches of trees at the beginning of spring. The third movement, the Adagio of the Sonata, is filled with some of the darkest, most existential writing Beethoven had ever put on paper, as time seems to become invisible when a single note is repeated almost randomly. That theme's echoed later by the deep, repeating tolling of related chords. In its simplicity, Brindell said Beethoven was expressing the four elements he felt described all of life. Despair, rage, devotion, and majesty. For all of Beethoven's amazing variety of composition, he only wrote one fugue in his life, and it's here in this sonata. Brindell laughed and said, And what a fugue it is. It is the mother of all fugues. It is the center of the final movement where four different themes intertwine, creating a battle between something being built and something falling apart, like life itself. The fugue continually runs to the brink of chaos and then snaps back into order. It stops in the middle, and then those repeated notes come back from the third movement as what feels like the approach of an ominous, unstoppable fate. And then, as if by magic, the fugue starts again, repeating itself, backwards, in complete joy. In the end, unbelievably, is triumph and happiness. The net result of the entire sonata is having experienced the joy of the greatest day in your life. At the end of the first week, we all had front row seats at Carnegie Hall to watch Brindell in concert play Sonata 110, among others. Afterwards, we were told we could go and talk to him backstage if we wished. I waited in line for about 20 minutes, and then it was my moment to meet the great man. He wore a comfortable gray sweater. He bowed to me, not out of respect, but as an indication he wasn't about to shake hands with anybody. In fact, he held his hands as if they were some treasure from another world. And they may have been. I gushed at how excited I was to hear him play, and that the classes were wonderful, and Alfred kept staring at me, and finally he interrupted me and said, You're not a musician, are you? I said, No, sir, I'm an actor. Alfred lit up and said, You do comedy, right? (laughs) I said, Yes. Yes, in fact, I just did this movie, Groundhog's Day. It's about a day that repeats itself over and over again. Brindell said, yes, like Sonata 110. Sidebar, I love Brindell bantering with classical music jokes. He continued to look at me with a certain amount of confusion, and he said, why on earth are you in my class? I said, because you are my favorite pianist, and I wanted to see you. Alfred said, well, do you play the piano at all? I said, yes, sir. Poorly, but I play. I guess, I guess the truth is I always wanted to be a musician. You see, there was this girl I knew in second grade, 
Claire Richards, and she played picking up pawpaws, and she was great. Now, she could play. Alfred was staring at me as if I was speaking a foreign language, and I tried to clarify. A picking up pawpaws, that's an American folk song. Anyway, since that day, I always wanted to be a pianist, but I never could play in front of people. I was too scared. My hands shake. So I became an actor. For some reason, I have no problem acting. Alfred chuckled and said, Amazing. Just amazing. Can I tell you a secret? I never wanted to be a musician. I always wanted to be an actor. I started in children's theater. I jumped in. I said, You're kidding! I started in children's theater, too. Alfred looked up to the heavens and said, Oh, it was awful. I got so frightened when I performed. My knees knocked together whenever I went on stage. So I quit. I became a pianist. I never had a problem playing the piano. We both looked at each other and smiled. Alfred shook his head and said, Can you imagine how much worse the world would have been if we had switched places? I laughed and said, Oh, then you have heard me play. I bowed to him and left the concert hall. I walked back to my hotel. It was a beautiful autumn night in New York. I went out with Justin and a few other musicians I'd gotten to know during the week. Justin told me he was playing a recital soon and I'd have to come back to hear him. Time is very deceptive. It creeps into everything we do. In the brief space of an hour, I had imagined switching identities with Alfred Brindell in the past and coming to hear Justin Kolb in the future. But physicists state that one of the characteristics of being human is that we can only experience time as a brief flowing arc of the immediate past and future we call the present. The idea that we could see the future is the stuff of science fiction. I would add that the idea we're prepared for the present is an impossibility. The next morning was as beautiful a day as I've ever seen. The air was cool and crisp, the sky was blue, the sun was warm. I felt heartened that my choice to come to New York for this improbable class led to the improbable meeting with one of my idols, Alfred Brindell. I was packed and ready to head home. My friend from college, Greg Grove, was with me. Greg always seemed to volunteer to drive to airports or to babysit or to lend me a corner of his floor to sleep on. Greg has always been a strange mix of endurance, generosity, and good humor. There's no way to thank him enough for his kindness to me over the years. Greg asked if we wanted to get something to eat before driving out to LaGuardia, and I suddenly thought, why not? It wasn't part of the original plan, but we had lots of time. Like Beethoven, why not improvise? Greg and I walked around the corner on 57th and 7th Avenue, we looked around and caught sight of one of the vanishing breed of Greek coffee shops. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, there was a coffee shop on every corner, and it was looking like the evolution of Manhattan had earmarked them for extinction. I wanted to enjoy them while I could. You can always count on them for fast service and a bottomless cup of coffee. Greg and I went in and sat down and ordered. I started drinking the first of my four pots of coffee that morning, when a man came into the diner pushing a green bicycle. 
It caught my eye because he was an odd mixture of elements. He was wearing a tweed jacket and a vest, and his pants legs were tied up so they wouldn't get caught in the spokes. He was wearing what looked like camping boots. He pulled off his bicycle helmet, and he had reddish hair streaked with gray, bald on top like me. Our eyes met for a second. His eyes were glowing. I started to smile as a reflex, and then the words tumbled out of my mouth, Oh. My. God. The man leaned his bike against the wall and ran toward me. I started laughing and crying at the same time. It was Alan. It was Alan Winslow. Alan from Texas. After all of these years. In 1974, Alan and his wife Alex had been Beth and my best friends. They were our first adult friends that weren't in school with us. We had everything in common. Alex and Alan were actors, professional actors, with a group called the Alpha Omega Players. During the afternoons, Alan and I would play cribbage and listen to Paul Simon and Elton John records. In the evenings, I acted with Alex in Giroudou's Electra with the unforgettable Al Evans playing the beggar. Alex and Alan were there for the first performance of Beth's Am I Blue, and we experienced the complete, unexpected greatness of that play together. We had countless dinners, made hundreds of plans for what our lives would look like if we were able to make our dreams come true. And then one night, out of the blue, Beth and I got a phone call from Alex that Alan had disappeared without a trace. For months, Beth and I worried. We kept in touch with Alex after we left for Illinois to pursue what seemed like a useless graduate degree. But our first phone call on Saturday mornings was to Alex wondering if there was any news. Eventually, all became silence. Alex moved away. We never heard the end of the story. And now the story was right in front of me. Five minutes ago, who would have thought someone could walk into this coffee shop that would totally eclipse my evening with Alfred Brindell? In a fraction of a second, we were both thrown into the time machine, and past and present became indistinguishable. The 20 years of absence vanished. We held each other in the middle of the diner. Greg, with his deadpan delivery, suggested I needed to let the poor guy order or we needed to get a room. I introduced Alan to Greg. We sat in silence, shaking our heads. And then I simply said, What happened? Where did you go that night? Alan laughed and said, I don't know. I guess I went nuts. I just thought my life was on a wrong track. I didn't know what to say or what to do. I loved Alex, but I had to leave. I ended up doing some crazy stuff that made it impossible for me to come back. I have no idea. I did some drugs for a period of time. That didn't help. I ended up here in New York, and I started all over again. I asked if he was acting. Alan gasped and laughed and said, Oh, God, no. (laughs) Maybe I'll start back soon. I'm teaching over here on the west side. I have been for years. I live over in Brooklyn, prospect with my wife and kids. I told him I had never been to Brooklyn ever. Alan said, well, it's beautiful. It's not like living in Manhattan. At which point Greg piped in, yeah, most New Yorkers try to stay out of New York if they possibly can. Alan said, hey, it's not so bad. It gives me a chance to ride, and then he pointed with pride to his bike.
It's a present for my birthday. A mountain bike. My wife Marcy and I are nuts. I got her a bike too. We love it. Isn't she a beauty? I said, well, when is your birthday? Alan blushed and said, in a couple of weeks, actually. I almost fell over. I said, I can't believe this. After all of this time, I get to see you and it's time for your birthday. I should get you a present. Alan laughed and said, just seeing you is the present. We talked more about the old days, about Beth, about my new life, and my son Robert with the baby on the way. Alan started smiling and said, I got to say, Stephen, I'm amazed at the things we go through in our lives and how we get past them all and can still be happy. I look back and I think of where I've been and I shake my head. And yet, here I am. I never thought I'd see you again. And there you are. And I could honestly say, this is the happiest I've ever been. The time had come for a mutual parting. Alan had to bike back to Brooklyn. I had to get my plane. We hugged again and went our separate ways with a vow to see each other again. Greg and I were laughing and joking in the car on the way to the airport. We talked about the mathematical probability of it all. How it never would have happened if we didn't decide to eat an early lunch at some greasy spoon out of a misguided affection for indigestion we had suffered in the past. I got on the plane with a sense of wonder and triumph. I got back home and told Annie all about running into Alan. She knew who he was from all of my stories from the good old days. And I was still abuzz about the entire week of Brindell and Beethoven and Alan. I decided I had to call mom and tell her. She always remembered Alex and Alan because their names both started with an A and she was never sure which one of them was the man. No matter how many times I told her, Alan is the guy, Alex is the girl, it was always a source of confusion. So I called her up and I said, Mom, you will never guess who I just ran into in New York. You remember Alex and Alan? I was waiting with delight for the standard, now which one is the man? But Mom fooled me this time. She said, Alan Winslow, your friend from college. I know, I just heard. Now, I was the one confused. You just heard. I just got home. You can't have heard. Mom said, oh, Aunt Helen called me and told me. She remembered his name from when you were at school. It's all over the news. I said, what is? Mom said, he was shot. It's all over the television. I said, what are you talking about? I just had breakfast with him. Mom said, I know it must be the same one. He was a drama teacher. He lived in Brooklyn. This morning, some boys killed him for his bike. My mind started to spin away from my body. I couldn't absorb anything I was hearing. I turned on the television. It was on CNN. I changed the channel. It was on our local news. It was the story of the day. Apparently, right after our breakfast, Alan rode his new bike to Brooklyn. Four boys tried to stop him and steal it. Alan refused and rode away, and one of the boys shot him in the back. He kept riding as long as he could, then fell. A woman in the park tried to get help, and in the end, sat beside him and talked to him until he died. The story ended up on 60 Minutes. It ended up on Court TV. The case was followed in the New York Times, not because of the murder of Alan, but because the boys were so young it stirred the national debate as to whether a 15-year-old could be tried as an adult. He was. He ended up in prison. The other three got lighter juvenile sentences. 
Because of the shooting, a civic outcry ran in several directions at once. There were demands for more safety in public parks. More weapon and anti-gang legislation was passed. New laws were considered and passed about the viciousness of certain crimes and the ability to try minors as adults. I've been to New York several times since that afternoon 17 years ago. Whenever I walk down 7th Avenue, I look for the coffee shop. It's no longer there. It hasn't been there for years. Whenever I walk down the street, I see the place Alan and I met for the last time. Strangely enough, it's some variation on the time traveler movie. On good days, I have the childish thought, if only I could go back in time and warn him. If only I could have gone ahead to Prospect Park and divert the boys. On darker days, I have the thought, what if my sudden appearance after all of this time delayed Alan and threw off the fabric of space-time and subjected him to peril? Any way you look at it, the real myth of the time traveler becomes apparent. It's a tale of regret, disguised as a tale of plenty. It's a fairy tale in which the powerless, through some form of magic, are able to get a second chance at undoing the cruelty of nature. Currently, I'm looking for some triumph to conclude this story. Maybe it rests in the very strong feeling I have that Alan is still with me. Perhaps it's in the residual effects of happy memories or in the power of goodness that was his nature. Or maybe that afternoon was only part of the story, and he just led the way and is waiting for me around the next turn. That was The Time Machine Deconstructed, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. I just want to take a moment to remind everyone, if you have a chance, do check out Stephen Tobolowsky's newest series of stories entitled Cautionary Tales, which you can buy at the Amazon Kindle store at stephentobolowsky.com. Just go to stephentobolowsky.com and you'll be able to get your hands on Stephen's newest exclusive to ebook store, which you can read not just on a Kindle, but also on your iPad, iPhone, Blackberry, or your Mac or PC. So check that out. And Stephen, where else can people find your work on the internet? I think uh best place to find me is tobolowskyfiles.com, and that's uh, <laughs> T as in Tom, O-B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling.com, and there you could find Facebook, Twitter, email, and all sorts of ways to get a hold of me. And you can find everything else I do at slashfilm.com. Thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. We'll see you guys later. Adios. Adios.